2 Timothy chapter number 2. Man, what a blessing to be in the house of the Lord tonight. I'm excited to be with God's people, and uh, I know God's got a truth for us this evening, and I trust that we'll have our hearts open unto it. 2 Timothy chapter number 2. I didn't come here to complain tonight, amen? I came here to praise the Lord tonight, preach His Word and rejoice, and uh, that's what I'm here for, amen? I got nothing to complain about, man. God's been too good to me. And uh, people say, Preacher, didn't you hear what happened today? Yeah, the Lord was faithful, as He always has been, as He was yesterday, as He will be tomorrow. Amen. And uh, we better learn to anchor ourselves to that. And uh, we better get unyoked from this world. And uh, can I get an amen on any of those? Maybe even one of them, that'd be all right. I'm just saying God's faithful. It's all right this evening to say that in the house of God. I, I trust that it is. And uh, he's going to continue to be faithful. Amen. We as God's people have nothing but cause to rejoice. Amen. And uh, praise the Lord. All right. Well, that was sermon number one. Let's go ahead and start sermon number two. Second Timothy chapter number two. Let's begin reading in verse number eight. And uh, I will tell you, there is one verse we have skipped over as we've moved expositionally through this passage. And it's it's verse number seven, which is sort of a close to the uh, to the beginning discourse where it says, consider what I say in the Lord give the understanding and all these things. Verse number 8, Paul, following a similar train of thought, he does switch gears a little, and he says this in verse 8, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer even unto bonds, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. But if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about to words, uh, about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenius and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his." Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to be in your house. Pray that the Holy Spirit would have liberty to move in this place, to take your word as his sword and wield it in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives. And may we, Father, be obedient to your word as it's preached unto us and as the Holy Spirit makes application of your word and, and your will in our lives. We'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the past few weeks, we've been making our way through 2 Timothy chapter number 2, and we've been following this thought. There are seven ways that the Apostle Paul describes the believer in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Verse number 1, he says, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And he describes the believer as a son or as a child, as a son or daughter. In Timothy's case, of course, he's describing him as a son. And uh, while it's true we are a child of God if we've been born again, I believe that there is maybe a little more nuanced application of what Paul's saying because he doesn't say thou therefore God's son. 
Uh, in Acts chapter number, I believe it's uh, 17. I might be incorrect about that. I'll have to go back and look. But when, when Paul meets Timothy, it would appear that Timothy is already saved. Uh, it would appear he already knows the Lord. So I don't even know that we could say that the relationship of a son and a father between Timothy is necessarily rooted to Paul being the one that led him to the Lord. It doesn't say, Thou therefore, uh, my son, that I have led to Christ, that I have won to Christ. But rather what it seems to be speaking of is a spiritual relationship uh, that exists between Paul and between Timothy and that Paul had invested in Timothy's life. And what he's doing is reminding Timothy that he owes a debt to him uh, that as he has been a father in the faith to him, so he has a responsibility to others uh, to propagate that truth and that faith in their lives. It's a reminder to me, and I trust to you as well, that every one of us that sit here saved by God's grace, we all owe something to somebody. Uh, now, we owe it to the Lord Jesus Christ for saving us, amen? But we also owe it to those that had an influence in our lives. Uh, none of us were born with a nascent knowledge of the gospel, how do we hear? Well, the Apostle Paul answered that in the book of Romans, chapter 10. He said, how shall they hear without a preacher? Somebody shared the truth with you. Somebody prayed for you. It might have been a Sunday school teacher. might have been an evangelist. might have been a pastor. Uh, might have been a parent, physically, biologically, or uh, a friend of the family, or any number of things. But somebody invested in your life. And you have a responsibility now to take that and do it in the life of another. So he is described as a son. Verse 3 says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier. Of Jesus Christ. So here the believer is described as a soldier. Certainly we live in a time and in a state of spiritual warfare. And uh, that has always been the condition of believers in this New Testament dispensation of grace. The devil's always wanted to thwart what God's doing. He still wants to thwart what God's doing. He's going to keep wanting to thwart what God's doing. We better go ahead and get used to that fact and start putting on the whole armor of God so that we can withstand evil and stand in the evil day that we're living in. Verse 5 says this, If a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. And here the believer is likened unto a sprinter, or we could even say an athlete of any kind, but certainly a person that is competing, trying to win the crown or win the prize. And uh, The Bible describes us as running a race, saying that we ought to run with patience the race that is set before us. But really what Paul is is driving at here is he's saying that we ought to be living this Christian life as though there's only, and he says in another place in 1 Corinthians, that they that strive all strive, but only one winneth the crown, only one obtaineth the, the prize and the crown. We ought to be passionately pouring ourselves into our Christian walk. We ought to view it as something uh, to win or to lose as it regards the success of it. Now, not as it regards the position or state of it. Of course, we are saved by God's grace if we've been born again, if we've trusted the Lord as our Savior. But we ought not treat it as though it's a casual thing. We ought to be striving to live for the Lord and to make the most of our life. But it's not just enough to strive. We've got to strive lawfully. In other words, God doesn't just care what you do. He cares how you do it. God is deeply interested in how we live our lives. Uh, the things that we do are not merely a means to an end, but God is in a holistic way working in our lives, wanting every facet of it to give Him glory and to give Him honor. So uh, He's described as a sprinter. Verse 6 says this, The husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. Here the believer is described as a sower, as someone whose job is to invest into the ground, to plant seed into the ground, and to seek and trust the Lord to provide a bounty to be uh, dug up and, and brought back up out of the ground. We spent a lot of time last week 
talking about how the Christian life is similar to this thing of, of farming and, and gardening and things of that sort. We're taking something that uh, we've gotten from someone else and we're putting it in the ground and we're expecting more to come up than what was given to us. And you know, that's the Christian life. We made note last week, and I'll remind you again, the Lord expects more from you than what He gave you. Uh, he expects more Christianity out of your life than simply what you got the day that you was born again. Now, uh, if a person's saved, they're as saved the moment they get saved as they ever will be. But what I mean to say is, uh, God, He planted the seed of the gospel in your heart and in your life. And He didn't do it just to win you to the Lord, but to win you to the Lord. And then consequently, all those that you would go on to win to the Lord. You know, when you plant a seed, you're not wanting one seed back. You're wanting many seeds back. If a person plants a, 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 a kernel of corn, he's not expecting to get a kernel of corn back out. He's expecting to get a whole crop, a whole yield out of it. We ask this question. I'll just go ahead and just drop it in your lap. How many people are we taking to heaven with us? How is God's return on the investment of the gospel in our life? Verse 21 says this, If a man therefore, and it's talking about unrighteous things, says if a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Here the believer is likened unto a sanctified vessel. Uh, in other words, a clean cup. Now, why do you want a clean cup? Well, because you don't want what you pour in it to get contaminated by it, and you don't want what you pour in it to just merely leak out of it. You want a cup that is clean and a cup that is whole. And you know, in your life and mine, that's what God expects. He expects us to be clean, and He expects us to have integrity, to be whole, uh, to have a, a, a sufficient and thorough understanding of the truth of the Word of God and competency as far as uh, what we believe and how we live. And why does God want that? Because He wants to pour things into our life that He might pour them into the life of another. So we ought to be a sanctified vessel. Verse 24 says this, The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient. Here the believers liken unto a servant. Let me say, Christianity, if it is anything, if it is anything at all, it is being a servant. It's being a servant of others and it's being a servant of God. To divorce servitude from the Christian experience is to warp beyond recognition the Christianity that Christ presented to those that He ministered amongst. To turn Christianity into a celebrity exploit is to so pollute what Jesus Christ taught about the basic understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, the moment that a man tries to take his Christianity and elevate himself through it, he has departed from what Christ taught as Christianity. I'm not saying he's a lost man. Plenty of saved people do that. But I'm saying you're not living like Christ taught when we seek to take our Christianity and use it as a, as a stepping stool, as a stepladder to elevate us above someone else. We've missed what Christ taught about Bible Christianity. But now, as we've read our text tonight, there is one that we have skipped over. And we've done this each week as we've moved through it. Uh, and it's found in verse number 15. The Bible says in verse 15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Here Paul likens the believer to a skilled laborer. It would appear if you read through the greater body of the passage here, and we've done that in the reading of our text, it would almost seem as though there are several illustrations, all in the same vein of being a workman, that are that are hearkened to. For instance, when he uh, talks about dividing the word of truth, that would seem to suggest 
a stonemason cutting angles in such a way that they will fit together appropriately and properly and solidly. When he talks later in verse 17 uh, about uh, bad doctrine eating as doth a canker, it reminds you of something like woodwork or maybe something like leatherwork where there can be a rot or a blemish within it that spreads and that corrupts and pollutes those things around it when he talks later on about the foundation of God sort of makes you think about a builder, someone that is building a structure or a building. But all of them are kin in this same sort of thought, in the same theme, the idea of a master craftsman that has set about to perform a task, to hold himself accountable, to prepare something for the examination of his master, of the one that holds authority over him. The context of all of this really is, uh, it's got to do with the Word of God and how we treat the Bible. I'm going to do it a little differently tonight, if that's okay, than how I've been preaching through these, because what I want to do is preach expositionally a little bit larger portion of Scripture than just the text in verse 15. To really understand what Paul's saying in verse 15, we've got to go back to verse number 8 and forward, and we've got to move past verse 15 down to about Verse number 19, because there was a problem at the church at Ephesus that Paul was addressing. It would appear as though at the church at Ephesus, speculative theology had taken root. Now, you might say, well, preacher, what do you mean by speculative theology? And I want to be very careful about uh, about the things that I say tonight, because I don't want to condemn something I'm not trying to condemn. I'm not opposed to God's people asking questions. I'm not opposed to God's people exploring veins of thought, and this and that, and uh, in my Sunday school, a lot of times we'll explain various or explore various veins of thought and different things. And, and certainly I don't want to seem like I'm trying to discourage anyone from asking questions. I believe that doctrine that won't stand up to scrutiny is not biblical doctrine. So I believe it's okay and I believe it's appropriate for God's people to ask questions. However, what was taking place here at Ephesus was that the body of doctrine that they were uh, simmering and, and marinating in, was not rooted and grounded in the truth of God's Word, but rather was the product of just sort of endless conversation and speculation and discussion, and what do you think, and what do they think, and this and that and the other. Paul writes to Timothy to address this problem. The main problem being that this speculation had displaced the clear, concrete teaching of the truth of the Word of God. It's perfectly appropriate for us to explore different things as far as as within the realm of the Word of God and ask questions and this and that. And if you hang around a Baptist church uh, pretty soon, you'll hear somebody wonder if Adam has a belly button and where Cain got his wife from and and where things like that. And they'll ask about dinosaurs and giants. And, and I'm not I'm not condemning any of that. But what I am saying is this, we need to make sure that all of that is kept in the proper perspective and that none of it displaces the clear teaching of the truth of God's Word. That is what Paul's dealing with here. And the reason I know that is because remember how this whole thing starts out. He says in verse 8, you'll see a common theme here. Verse 8 starts this way. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Now look down at verse 14. He says, of these things, put them in remembrance. So between those two points, he lists a body of doctrine that he is proclaiming to be profitable truth. Things that every believer needs to know and things that make sort of the core of our understanding of Bible Christianity. What are those things? Well, let's just read through them real quick. The first is in verse 8. He says, remember that Jesus Christ 
And we know who that is, right? That's Jesus Christ. And he uses that dual term, both the earthly name and the divine name. Jesus, the name that was given at His birth, and it was a human name. And then the, the name Christ, which means the anointed, the Messiah, the given and the sent of God. Jesus Christ of the seed of David, he talks about his lineage and talks about his, his, uh, you know, ancestors, humanly speaking, but he's tying into it uh, what God had prophesied concerning the fact that one of the seed of David would be raised up. Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead. He's talking about the physical bodily resurrection. Why does that matter? Because later on, he's going to call out a couple boys by name. And he's going to say that they had perverted the truth and corrupted, overthrown the faith of some because they were teaching that the resurrection was already past. Well, now, how could you teach such a thing to a bunch of Christians? The only way you could teach that is by claiming that the resurrection was just sort of an abstract spiritual truth and not a literal, physical, bodily resurrection. Listen, i got news for you tonight. It's true we've been seated together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, spiritually speaking. It is equally true that there's coming a day when the dead in Christ shall be raised first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. It's equally true that one day, Paul said in the book of Philippians, this vile body will be made like unto his glorious body. I believe in a positional spiritual truth of the resurrection present in the life of the believer right now. But I also believe there's come the day when God's going to raise the, the saved dead from the earth and He's going to give them a glorified body. I believe in a physical resurrection. So He talks about this physical resurrection. He says, according to my gospel. So here's the first thing He points to in this sort of sample platter of profitable truth. And the first is the salvation of the believer. He talks about the gospel. What he's saying here is remember uh, that Jesus Christ is who he says he was, is who the Bible says he is. He is the seed of David and he was physically crucified and physically rose from the dead according to my gospel. The gospel is central to the identity of the Christian. Verse number nine, he says, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bond. So he talks about suffering the believer. We need to be teaching people that being a Christian means you're going to suffer persecution. Now, that don't mean that every little thing that happens to you is you suffering persecution. It don't mean if you go through the drive-thru at Wendy's or at McDonald's and you ask for ketchup and they give you mustard that you're suffering persecution. But it does mean if you live godly in Christ Jesus, suffering will be a part of that experience. So in other words, that sort of shoots the whole prosperity gospel right in the foot, don't it? The idea that it's always the will of God that we never have hard times. You won't find that anywhere in the Bible. If you're to believe that, then Jesus was out of the will of God. Job was out of the will of God. David was out of the will of God. I mean, you go through every... Uh, Daniel was out of the will of God. Joseph was out of the will of God. If you're going to say that suffering is an indicator of something wrong in a person's life, you're going to have to throw out everybody in the Bible, including God Himself, to make that work. So the suffering, the believer. But look what he says. He says, but... The Word of God is not bound. He talks about the sure foundation of the believer and certainly the reality and truth. And I think the only reason he didn't say more about it is because he's getting ready to do a lot of preaching on it here in a second. But the Word of God is not bound. No matter what happens in this world, the Word of God is not hindered. It is not stifled. And that is the foundation that we rest upon. Paul's saying this in juxtaposition to his suffering. He's saying, I suffer trouble as an evil doer, even unto bonds. But he says, but guess what? The Word of God's not bound. I may be locked up. They can't lock away the truth of God's Word. It is our sure foundation. It says in verse number 10, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He talks about striving the believer. Why is he doing this? Because he's trying to see other folks get saved. Uh, that's, the, that's the fundamental work of the believers try to reach others with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I'm not against doing good things for people. I'm glad when people do good things for me. But the fundamental work of the Christian above and beyond all things is to share the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse number 11, he says this, It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. So he talks about the success of the believer. Success is not measured by the number of people we have in our pews. Success is not measured by the number we've got in our bank account. Success is not measured by the applause and acclamation of men. What is success in the Christian measured and determined by? Well, the mortifying of the flesh. If we be dead with Him, we shall also live with Him. And our willingness to suffer with Him, to detach ourselves from this world and to live with the world for the world to come. Because He says, if we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. Now again, that don't look like the world's metric or even a lot of Christians' metric for success, but that's Paul's metric. What we ought to be doing is living with Him and reigning with Him. How do we do that? By dying to self and by suffering for His glory and in His name. Then he says this, if we deny Him, He also will deny us. A lot of people scratch their head about that, but I don't think there's anything to scratch our head about. What it means to deny someone is to not be proud of them. Uh, in other words, to be ashamed at them. You know, later on Paul says uh, that we need not be ashamed when we stand before God talking about studying the Word of God. So uh, this is not strange language that he's using. What he's saying is if we're ashamed of Him, He's going to be ashamed of us. If we are unwilling to be a bold witness for Him, then one day it's going to be an embarrassment for Him the fact that we belong to Him. Now you say, well, preacher, and I'm, let me just say it this way. He's talking about the shame of the belief. In other words, the fact that there is something to lose. And I'm not talking about losing their salvation, but I am talking about losing our reward before the Lord. There is something to lose if we don't live for God. One of the things we ought to be teaching people is there's a cost. There is a price. There is a loss that can be suffered. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, didn't he? He said uh, that a person would suffer loss. They'd be saved, yet so as by fire, but they would suffer loss if they built on wood, hay, and stubble. So there's the shame of the believer. And then he, he talks about the security of the believer. I love this, verse 13. He says, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. So Paul doesn't want anybody wondering what he's talking about. He says, if we lose the faith, that don't matter because it wasn't our faith that was getting us to heaven anyway. It was Christ's grace. It was His promise unto Himself that He would save us if we believed on Him. And He cannot deny Himself. So here's this little body, the salvation of the believer, the suffering of the believer, the sure foundation of the believer, the Word of God, the, the, the striving of the believer. In other words, giving out the gospel, the success of the believer, the mortifying of the flesh and suffering in His name, the shame of the believer, that there's a, a price to be paid for not living for Him, and the security of the believer that if we're saved by God's grace, we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, received the truth of the gospel and received Christ as our Savior, God won't deny Himself. We belong to Him. He gives this little body of truth. And then he talks about some of the problems going on at Ephesus. And Paul writes to Timothy concerning four things. I want you to notice them with me very quickly tonight. Look at verse 14 with me. He says, of these things, put them in remembrance. So that tells me something. It tells me that the things they were arguing about were not substantive things. So preacher, how do you know that? Because Paul just got through talking about substantive things. And he said, they done forgot about these things. What they need to be put in remembrance of is these important truths about the Lord. Instead, what were they doing? Of these things put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Here's what was going on. A lot of fussing, a lot of, uh, of arguing, a lot of fighting about inconsequential things. 
Now, here's the big question, right? I found this. There's a lot of things that I think are consequential that the average church folk don't think are consequential. I understand that. There's probably things that you think are important that somebody else don't think are important. There's probably things they think are important that you don't think are important. What can we learn and how can we understand what is integral to the life of the New Testament church? Well, we can tell that of what the result is of that striving. What happens as a result of it? It says that they strive not about words to no profit. In other words, he talks about the emptiness of speculative talk. And then he says, but to the subverting of the hearers. It wasn't edifying anybody. Can I just confess something to you tonight? Well, I don't guess I'm confessing it. I'm, I'm, I'm acknowledging it. I've been in a lot of preaching in my life that didn't edify nobody. It didn't help nobody. And I don't mean because it was hard preaching, because I've been in hard preaching that helped you. I've been in preaching so hard, I just wanted to crawl up under the pew. But to be frank, it was the very thing that I needed. But I've been in a lot of preaching in my life. You know, when you're a preacher, you go to a lot of preachers' meetings, or you used to, and then, I don't know, four or five years in, you get cynical and learn your time's better spent at home playing with your kids and sitting in a lot of them meetings, so you quit going to them. But, uh, or maybe that's just my experience. But, I, you know, I've been in a lot of these meetings, and I've heard, man, I've heard them, I've heard them ride every hobby, hobby horse there is to ride. I've heard them fuss and argue about a bunch of stuff that nobody, not the lost man, not the saved man, not God in heaven, uh, nobody's interested in talking about it but the devil himself. And they've wasted a lot of time. And here's all that's happened. It has discouraged believers. It has undercut their, their fundamental faith in the truth of the word of God. And it's caused people to walk away shaking their head because it did not build them up in the truth of the word of God. Instead, it just tore them down and left them feeling aggravated inside. Now, let me tell you something tonight. There will be times, at least this has been my case, uh, there have been times I've been in the flesh and good truth I needed made me mad. I'm not saying every time somebody gets mad it's because the preacher's done something wrong. You, you better believe I'm sure enough not trying to make my job harder up here. But I am saying that we need to make sure that in as much as we are studying the truth of the Word of God, talking the truth of the Word of God with others, and in as much as I am preaching the truth of the Word of God in people's lives, it needs to always be focused not on what is speculative in nature. That's what they were doing. He calls them, notice the emptiness. He says that they are words to no profit. I'd say this, any truth we get from the Word of God, be it a large, obvious fundamental truth or be it a small truth that maybe we would view as inconsequential. If God put it in His Word, it must be important. Everything, the Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So when He's talking about what is not profitable, He's not talking about any part of the Word of God. Because all Scripture is profitable. He's talking about extraneous things that regard the opinions of men and the preferences of people and I, I will say this, there's a certain hollowness to that. Uh, the fussing and the arguing and the fighting, I have no interest in anymore. What I want is the truth of God's Word. If you can give me chapter and verse on it, let's talk about it. But if it's just a matter of personal opinion, it's really of no interest to me. We don't have time. Jesus is coming soon. I'm not saying we don't have time for clear, strong doctrine. I'm saying we don't have time for personal opinions and preference and arguing. That's what we don't have time for anymore. Jesus is coming soon. People dying, dropping off into hell everywhere we look and everywhere we turn. Uh, it's also appeared to me that the people that engage in that, sooner or later they get mad at everyone. And if they don't get mad at everyone, they run out of people to get mad at, they'll get mad at themselves. And they'll usually go and they wind up being tossed about with every wind and slight of doctrine. What happens to those people? Well, notice the impact of speculative talk. It says to the subverting of the hearer. 
That word subverting, it, it has the idea of overthrowing. In fact, the only other time you'll find it in your, in your Bible is when Peter's talking about the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it has the idea of upheaval, of throwing people over, almost like a plow turning uh, soil over and over and over again. What he's saying is this, man. It's not building people up into loving the Lord and living for God and learning how to crucify the flesh and mortify self and do more for God and share the gospel and walk closer and walk cleaner. All it's purposed in is to beat people down. To beat people down. He warns about ending discussions that are worthless. Notice number two. I don't know if you really like that or really hate it, but we're going to move on either way because we ain't got time to dwell on it. Verse number 15, he says this. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So the first thing he writes about is ending discussions that are worthless. And he says you need to make sure as a believer that what you're engaging in is not just the, the speculative opinions of men, but you are engaging in clear, solid, sound biblical truth. And that's what he says. He's encouraging diligent work. He uses the term study, and it carries with it the idea of diligence. Study to show thyself approved unto God. And here he talks about the workman's impassioned diligence. This really, I think, is the heartbeat of his of his truth as regards the workman. And what he's saying is the same way that that workman gives himself, that skilled labor, that master craftsman, gives themselves to their work until the work is completed. That ought to be our same attitude towards the truth of the Word of God. We live in a day where God's Word is treated very haphazard. We see it all the time. Uh, we see a very casual and irreverent attitude towards God's Word. Now, I want you to listen carefully. I believe we can make application of the Word of God in myriad ways. But one of the ways we can never and should never make application of the Word of God is in direct contradiction to the clear context and truth of the Word of God. Can I give you an example of it? Listen, and I love it. I love Philippians. I love the book of Philippians. I'm glad I can do all things through Jesus Christ which strengthens me. Aren't you glad? But you know the context of that. Paul's not talking about uh, doing better at work. He's not talking about uh, you know meeting a new bench pressing goal. He's not, he's not talking about learning a new hobby. He's talking about suffering. And he says, I've learned whatsoever state I'm in there with to be content. He said, I know how to be abased. I, I know how to uh, abound. I know how to suffer. I know how to be exalted. I can do all things through Christ. So here's what he's saying. He's not saying I can make Jesus Christ do all things. He's saying I can do all things through Jesus Christ. But the way that verse is used most of the time today, what they really mean to say is, I can make Jesus Christ do anything I want. Now, that's not what your Bible says. The Bible says, I can do all things through Jesus Christ, which strengtheneth me. In other words, I can do what He desires for me to do. Now, if I just blew up your favorite verse, I'm sorry. You're just going to have to forgive me and give me a little grace. But that's one example of it, where people approach the Word of God with only the desire to to, to shave off the thinnest veneer of whatever truth is there and then stretch it and warp it to fit whatever they're going through in their life. You know, you'll get a lot deeper, richer truth out of the Word of God if you'll let the Word of God speak to you instead of you trying to speak for it. We need to be a skilled workman. We need to apply ourselves to it. A man doesn't learn to be a, a master craftsman by taking a 30-minute online course. Man doesn't learn to become a master craftsman by reading a few magazine articles or reading a book or two. How does a man become a master craftsman? Well, by giving his life to it. 
by making it the very heartbeat of how he spends his time and what he does. And I'm just telling you this, the casual attitude towards the Word of God that exists in many Christians today is part of the reason we are so spiritually anemic. It's, by the way, part of the reason that our world is being enthralled in mass deception around us everywhere that we turn. You know why that is? If a man doesn't know the truth, he'll believe any lie. The way to guard yourself against lies is part of the I don't spend a lot of time preaching on heresy. I really don't. You've been around here. I don't, I don't spend a lot of time preaching about everything that everybody believes that's wrong. You know why? It's, I got my hands full trying to get you all to believe what's right. Amen? I got my hands full trying to teach the truth of the Word of God. And what I'm saying is this. You know, if you want to guard yourself against counterfeits, you don't study the counterfeit, man. You study the real thing. You get a good handle on what a real dollar looks like, you'll spot the phony dollar. If you get a real good understanding of what God's Word does teach, when somebody comes along with something they don't teach, you'll say, whoa now, wait a minute, that's not what my Bible says. So we see the workman's impassioned Diligence. And then we see the workman's impending determination. I, I notice this. There's two words that, that are given that are sort of options. He says, uh, study to show thyself. And that word show means to present yourself. Almost like if you finish your, your, your task and you are now standing for inspection in front of, you're presenting that work. And there's two options. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed. A workman that is approved unto God. So here's the question. Are we going to be approved or are we going to be ashamed? As we stand before the Lord with what we've done with His Word, are we convinced we know what He means by it? That we've learned it. That we know it. Now, let me be very clear. There ain't anybody walking the earth that has an exhaustive knowledge of God's Word. You know why? Because there's no end to the truth of the Word of God, to the depth, to the breadth, to the height, to the width, to the length. I, I understand that. But you also understand that God's not going to judge us as a superhuman. He's going to judge us as a sinner saved by grace. And while it's true that nobody has an exhaustive understanding of the Word of God, I would ask you this, do you have a working knowledge of it? Can you say sincerely, I've applied myself to the study of it such that I that I have a, a knowledge of it that I am not ashamed of and I don't believe God will be ashamed of? The word given here is, as approved is a word that was used of coins and metals that are tested in the fire to prove their worth. They're all shiny on the outside. But when the fire is put to them, you'll find out if there's impurity there. And one of these days, we're going to have to answer to God for what we believe. I know that's something that's not in vogue to talk about in modern Christianity. But we're going to answer for what we believe. Not just what we've done. Do we believe right? Do we know what God's Word teaches? Have we been in the book? Have we studied it? Have we applied it to our lives? So the workman's impending determination. And then notice this, and I'm going to try not get lost in the weeds because it's already 10.30. Didn't that sermon go quick? Listen, time flies when you're having fun, right? Notice the workman's important distinction. Look at what it says. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Now, this is interesting. Rightly dividing the word of truth. That language is so familiar to us that I think the force of it is lost upon us. Most of us, we could, if we couldn't quote verbatim, we could quote pretty close to this verse. And we've just always been taught and known and understood that the way you study the Word of God can be described as rightly dividing it. But has it ever dawned on you what unusual language that is? 
It would seem as though Paul had in mind the idea of a stonemason who knows how to cut stone straight and true so that it will fit into its proper place in a building. But what God says is if a man's going to know the Word of God, he has to know how to partition it, how to compartmentalize it, how to divide it, and to put barriers within it. In other words, God says that our distinction in the Word of God is important. Knowing which part of the Word of God fits where and in what way. We've got to, when we study the Word of God, we have to take into account the obvious differences, for instance, between the dispensations, the various kinds of judgments that people will face, the two different resurrections, right? The resurrection unto life and the resurrection unto death, the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the, the unrighteous, those two resurrections. We've got to keep in mind the difference between our standing and our state. In other words, how God views us and how we right now stand and exist or the state that we are in. We've got to recognize the difference between Israel and the church. And there's a difference between Israel and the church. We've got to know the difference between the church and the kingdom. We've got to know the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it is the distinctions in the study of the Word of God that leads to a proper understanding of it. The idea of merely viewing it as one muddled and blurred together, uh, you know, revelation of the same thing in different ways is an improper, according to the Bible, an improper understanding of it. We have to put the divisions where they exist. That's why I'm a dispensationist. Because I believe there are divisions in the Word of God. And I believe if you don't make those distinctions, you're going to get everything whacked. By the way, he gives an example of this here in a moment when he talks about the resurrection. It's true that our standing right now is that of a resurrected believer seated together with Christ in heavenly places. But that is not our state right now as we exist. We are still in our sin-fallen, sin-cursed, infirmed body. One of these days, God's going to raise us from the dead. And more just regard than regarding the resurrection, in every facet of our existence, the state and the standing will become one and the same. Right now we're sinless and perfect and righteous in the eyes of God. But have you looked around? That sure ain't how most of us are living. But thank the Lord, one of these days, hey listen, one of these days, Paul said it this way. Paul said, not that I have, I am already perfect either that I have already attained, but I press forward. I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What was Paul saying? If that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. God saved me to make me something. And in his eyes, I'm already that something. And one of these days, I'm going to both in his eyes and in reality, I'm going to be that something. It'll be the same thing. Paul says on this side of glory, that ain't going to happen. But I'm pressing towards the mark. I'm trying to become what God has saved me to be. Most doctrinal heresy exists from ignoring these distinctions. That's why it's so important that we rightly divide. It doesn't say that we rightly unite the word of truth. You know what that'd be, right? That'd be typology. I love preaching on typology. Man, I love it. I love going to the Old Testament, finding something that's a picture of something that's revealed in the New Testament. I love it. But it doesn't say rightly uniting the word of truth or rightly connecting the word of truth. Our correct body of doctrine comes from rightly dividing the word of truth and understanding where those distinctions exist. He goes on in verse number 16. i got to hurry, and I know i got to hurry, and you know i got to hurry, so you ain't got to say nothing about it. But... <laughs> He goes on to say, But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase 
unto more ungodliness. And their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenius and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, they've wandered, saying that the resurrection is past already and overthrow the faith of some. So the first thing he writes regarding is ending discussions that are worthless. He says, everybody be helped. If you ain't got, what'd your mama teach you? If you ain't got nothing nice to say, don't say nothing at all. If you don't have anything that edifies, if you don't have anything rooted and grounded in the truth of the Word of God, we need to be careful lest we engage in empty words because they provide an opportunity for discouragement and for wrong doctrine. Then he talks about encouraging diligent work. He says, instead, you ought to be treating the Word of God like, like a master craftsman does. You ought to diligently just give yourself to the truth of the Word of God. And you ought not be trying to figure out what you can make it say. You ought to be trying to figure out what it says. Then let it make you say what it says. You stick with me there? I, I think we got through that. And then he says, he, he reveals the, the truth. He, he references exposing dangerous workers. Now, there were some that were at Ephesus that were probably not intending to cause an issue. They were just doing like a lot of, of folks, me and you and everyone. We got curiosity. Curiosity killed the cat, but it, it seems to thrive in Baptists and and they were just, you know, they were just asking questions and this and that. But Paul said, man, that's causing problems. It's confusing people. It's causing issues. It's discouraging some. And it's causing them to fuss and fight and feud over things that are not important instead of, of, of coalescing around the, the truth of the Word of God. He says, you need to deal with that. Instead, and he says this to Timothy, man, this smites my heart tonight. Uh, he says to Timothy, you're the man of God. You ought to be getting in the Word of God and getting the truth of God and preaching the truth of the Word of God to them. Don't make them flap around in the wind. Give them something concrete to stand upon. But then he says, you know, there are some other folks around there too. There are some folks who are not meaning any trouble, but you still need to deal with it. And Timothy, you need to stand up and preach the truth of the Word of God, study the truth. But he said, there's some folks, Timothy, you got to be careful about. Because there are some that are intentionally using it as an opportunity to undercut the truth of God's Word and to try to ensnare some away from the truth of the Word of God. Notice a few things here, and I'm going to have to move through them quick. But notice first he speaks of the seedbed of heresy. He says, shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. These people were given to what he calls profane and vain babblings. And the word that's given profane here, we think of the word profane as being perverted, right? We think of it, we say, well, that's, that's profane. We, we mean something filthy, something dark, something sinful, something perverted. But that's not really what the word profane means. Profane is, is the opposite, is, it is the antonym of holy. So if something is holy, that means it is hallowed. That means it is distinct and special in the eyes of God. And when he says profane, he means something that is just common. The word has the idea of a, of a threshold over which everyone treads. It speaks of that which is unhallowed and common. It describes, listen carefully, those who have no feeling for God. Can I give you a little piece of wisdom that will help you? Most of the folks that will argue with you care less about the truth than you do. Most of the people that want to argue with you, I'm going to say it again, care less about the truth than you do. That's why they know they can get you spun up. Is because they know that you care about the truth. They'll, they'll slip around like an eel from this position to that position, this heresy to that heresy, and they're not invested in the truth. They don't care what the truth is, and that's why they'll run like they're running from different places of cover or shelter from this one to that one. And there's no coherency in what they believe. There's no there's no system in what they believe. But it doesn't matter to them because they are not tethered to the truth. 
They look at you and you care about what's true. And so it's easy to get goaded into. It's easy to get drawn into the argument. But here's what Paul says. He says, shun them. Now, what does it mean to shun? Well, it has the idea of walking out of your way to get away from them. In other words, those that don't treat the Word of God with reverence, those that want to scoff at it, those that want to snicker at it, those that want to sneer about it and then try to argue with you about it, they don't care about it. If they did, they wouldn't be scoffing at it. So it's a waste of your time to argue with them about it. You'd best be served just to walk straight around them and say, I'm sorry, you don't believe that's the Word of God anyway. It'd be a waste of time for us to argue. Let's let's argue about who's going to be the next football coach or something. But let's not argue about God's Word. Because you care about who will be the next football coach, but you don't really care what's in that Bible. If you did, you wouldn't have the attitude you've got about it. And then he says, vain babblings. Empty babblings. People that talk. Listen, there's some folks that talking was an Olympic sport, son. I mean, that, that just talking for the sake of hearing themselves talk. Now, somebody's going, going to throw up. You know, I, I ain't going to get there. I ain't even going to go. I'm going to shun it. But suffice it to say, that kind of stuff, that's not harmless. What does it do? For they will increase unto more ungodliness. In other words, our approach to scriptural truth should not be speculative. It should be spiritual and scriptural. We should be reading it not to say what could it mean, but to say what does it mean? What does it mean? What can we learn of God? Who He is, what He desires, what His mind is. We've all engaged in a little what-if theology in our lives and wondered about this and wondered about that. And I suppose in passing, it's not the end of the world. But when that becomes the substance of our relationship to the Word of God, guess what's going to happen? We have now relegated God's truth to an academic pursuit. And we will learn how to divorce ourselves from any feeling of of debt and duty to the truth of the Word of God. And it now has become an academic book to be studied, not the living, breathing Word of God to speak to our hearts. So we see the seedbed of heresy. Then we see the spreading of heresy. What happens? Their word will eat as doth a canker. As doth a canker. Every once in a while when I'm preaching, every once in a while, I will say something. And... I might say something, for instance, about Calvinism. We were, the other day I was preaching and I, I took off on a little thing about Calvinism. Now you think I do that because I'm mad at a Calvinist, but I'll be honest with you. The guys I run with, I probably ain't talked to a full blown, died in the wool Calvinist in years. They know who I am and I know who they are and we just, we don't talk a lot, right? They believe Jesus died only for a few folks. I believe he died for everybody. But every once in a while, in our independent, fundamental, premillennial, soul winning, Jesus died for everybody for the sins of the whole world Baptist church, I'll preach about Calvinism. And you might think to yourself, preacher, why do you do that? Man, everybody knows it. Why are you talking about the King James Bible? We all believe the King James Bible. Why are you doing that? And I'll tell you why I'm doing that. Because it eats as a canker. If a little bit of it gets in and takes root. Now, I want you to listen carefully. If someone disagrees with anything I preach and I got the time to and they're willing to talk sincerely about it, I'm happy to talk to them about it, man. That don't bother me. But folks that have no interest in anything other than to find a place to get into and to spread their rot, I have no interest in. I don't know if you get it, man, but I'm an under-shepherd and we're the sheep, all of us, and we have a responsibility. And it ain't my job to argue with wolves. It's my job to protect sheep. So their word, it'll eat as doth a canker. We ought not play around with bad doctrine. 
It'll destroy a church. It'll destroy people. It don't stay in one place. It spreads. And then we see the snare of heresy. He says, of whom is Hymenius and Philetus. Now you might say, well, preacher, what do they have to do? Tell us something fascinating about their names. Well, there ain't really nothing. Philetus means beloved. Tells me God God loves him, or reminds me of it at least. Hymenius means uh, belonging to a marriage. So I don't know what that means. But here's what I do know. I do know that this isn't the first time we've heard of this Hymenius fellow. In 1 Timothy chapter number 1, listen to what Paul says. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou might by them mightest war a good warfare, holding the faith and a, a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwreck. Of whom is Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. You say, preacher, what does that teach you? Well, it teaches me that from 1 Timothy to 2 Timothy, Something happened with Alexander, but Hymenius is still causing the same problems he was. It tells me that bad doctrine is a snare. It's quicksand. People get in it. It warps the way they view the Word of God. And it becomes almost impossible, except God doing a work in their heart and mind, for them to be pulled out of it. It's amazing to me. And I I don't have time. I, I, I don't. I promise. But... It's amazing to me sometimes I've talked to people that are ensnared in, in, in bad doctrine. Sometimes it's full-blown cult, heresy, things that are anti-Christ. And sometimes it's just areas where they've allowed something to, to, to get, you know, sort of off kilter and off frame and off track. But, but it's amazing how very often that heresy has reshaped the way they view everything in the Word of God to such a degree that you'll talk to them about certain passages. You'll say, well, you know, this, this part of the Bible says this and teaches this. And they will do ideological gymnastics. They will flat out deny the obvious, plain, contextual application of that truth. They'll do anything they have to to try to get away from the truth of what's being said there. Can I give you one example? I'm going to give you one. I'm, I'm just one, all right? If it's not good enough, I'll give you your money back. I remember talking to someone several years ago uh, that was apostolic. Now, we've got an apostolic church right down the road down here, big old outfit, and I was talking to an apostolic. Apostolics are what's called oneness Pentecostal. Now, what that means is they don't believe in the Trinity. They believe that there is only Jesus, and they believe that the terms Father and Holy Spirit are just different ways of talking about Jesus Christ. They don't believe that there are three distinct persons in the Trinity. And I was talking to this fellow that's, that's an apostolic, and I said, well, you know, when you go to the book of Genesis, I said, I, I get what you're saying, but my problem is, when you go to the book of Genesis, God did say something like this. He said, let us, let us make man in our image. And later on in the book of Genesis, when they was going down to see the, 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 you know, Tower of Babel, they said, let us go down and see what man hath done. He said, so you're going to have a little trouble with that. This is what he said. He said, no, man. He said, that's just like if we're saying, you know, hey, let's go to the mall. <laughs> I looked at him and said, that's the most redneck thing I've ever heard a man say in my entire natural born life. He said, no, we do that all the time. They'll say, well, let us, let's go down to the mall now. I said, listen, God ain't your Uncle Jeffrey, all right? He said what he said distinctly and on purpose. Now, he, this guy, he ain't so dumb he can't tie his shoes. He knows that that's not true. But he is so warped by the body of doctrine he had engaged in that it got, he was ensnared by that thing. He couldn't even think straight as a result of, we see the snare of heresy. I gotta hurry on. Look at the scope of, who concerning the truth have erred. Now this isn't a little error. It's a big error. 
because it says saying that the resurrection is past already. See, here's the truth of the matter. Can I tell you why I'm a dispensationalist? Because I can't be anything else and, and read my whole Bible. If I'm going to be, if I'm going to be a reformed theologian, if I'm going to be a covenant theologian, if I'm going to be into replacement theology where I believe that the church has displaced Israel or that, that Israel is just symbolic of the church and that there's no distinct, you know, nation of Israel that God's dealing with and it's all, if I'm going to be that, I'm going to have to cut portions of my Bible out. I'm going to have to get rid of certain whole portions of it in order to make that work. Dispensationalism is the only body of doctrine that allows me to keep my whole Bible and read it just like God gave it to me. Pretty soon, you let heresy come in. Sooner or later, it'll push something else out. By the way, you know why anti-Semitism is so rampant in the Catholic Church? You know why that, that amongst Roman Catholics they hate Jews? Because of their theology. Their amillennialism requires them to displace Israel as a nation and put the church in place of Israel. And now all those promises regarding Israel don't make no sense. And now they're not viewed as God's beloved people that are fallen and, and flawed and, and sometimes even worse than the Gentiles they're living amongst. But that's because of their rebellion and disobedience. Their bad doctrine. Listen, you know how God said it? Uh, uh, that, that evil communication, it corrupts good manners. Bad doctrine will lead to bad living and bad actions. So we see that. And then what's the seriousness of it? He says, and overthrow the faith of some. Some had got plumb out of the church at Ephesus because their doctrine was so confused and muddled and didn't make any sense. Some had looked at it and said, if i got to live in this body for all of eternity, I don't even want this thing called Christianity. If God's not going to raise us from the dead. And by the way, when you're talking about the resurrection, you're not just physically talking about the resurrection of a body, but you're talking about the restitution of God setting all things right. You're talking about the culmination of God's plan of redemption for all of humanity because no doctrine is an island unto himself. It all informs and affects everything else. People start looking at the Bible and saying, if the resurrection ain't true, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians? If Christ be not risen, then is your faith in vain. You're dead in your sins. Some of them said, well, if that's the case, if there ain't no resurrection, there ain't no Christ and there ain't no Christianity and they walked away. Bad doctrine can destroy lives. It can destroy homes and marriages. It can lead to, to generational, generational bondage in sin and unrighteousness. So instead, what should we be doing? I like how he ends this. I got two points here and I'm done. I promise just two. Notice we see him writing about extracting divine wealth. From the world. Here's what he says in verse 19. Nevertheless, man, I like those neverthelesses because they usually come after something that ain't good. He says, nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. You know what he says? He says, there's a lot of bad doctrine out here and there's a lot of folks getting into it and there's a lot of, there's a lot of mess going on. He says, I'm confident the Lord knows them that are his. Paul had gotten that assurance by the careful study and application of the truth of God's Word. You know what God's Word, if when we study it and believe it and know it, you know what it gives? It gives peace. We know where the truth is. The foundation of God that we stand on is sure. I don't know what kind of heresies are going to exist in this world. I don't know what craziness is getting ready to take hold in our nation. But I know that this Bible will not change and it will be right just as it's always been. I don't know about you, but that gives me peace that is desperately needed. And you know what else? Not only the peace that results, but the purity that results. Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. You know what I've found? The more I know about Him, the harder it is 
to live in sin. I have to actively put out of my mind what Jesus has done for me in order to live in disobedience and sin. And listen, sometimes I do it. I'm not saying I don't. But I'm saying that the greatest remedy to unrighteousness in the life of a believer is to get in God's Word and to study. Where bad doctrine lives, bad behavior will follow. Can we reverse engineer that? Where bad behavior lives, good doctrine sincerely applied in a person's life will rectify that problem. You'll find that usually places where doctrine is crazy, immorality lives, unrighteousness lives. Wouldn't you think that, listen, for folks that believe that a person can lose their salvation, wouldn't you think that would make them walk straighter? But it doesn't, does it? Most churches and denominations that believe a man can lose their salvation are not places that are given to legalism in the sense of rigidity. Usually they're places of license and immorality. Now I'd think if I thought God was going to snatch my my salvation away from me if I did something wrong, you'd think that'd make me live right, but it doesn't. No matter how you warp the truth of God's Word, it will always make you more wicked, not less wicked. We can't try to re-engineer what God's Word teaches to try to make people live a certain way. You know why? Because it's only the truth of God's Word that can change a man's living in the first place. You'd think it'd make those crowds more more righteous, but it doesn't. It makes them more permissive. What makes a man live and walk holy? The truth of the Word of God. Let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart iniquity. All right, let's close tonight. Bless this invitation. May your people get help from it. Lord, I love you tonight. Thank you for the truth of your Word. Help us to revere it in the way we ought to. Lord, I love you and I ask it in Jesus' name with our heads bowed, our eyes closed.